Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. Get social with the Unelectables. You can find us on Twitter at Unelectables. And on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. Good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're back. Oh my God! For the first time in four months, we're recording a podcast. This is the Unelectables. I'm Joey. Joey, and with me, as always, Kirk Schmidt. Kirk, how the hell are you? I'm good. I I'm not really sure what happened. We recorded in February, and all of a sudden, uh, three years later, uh, we're back. Well, I think this is my fault because the last episode went up on leap day it went up on february 29th so, oh, so i think maybe four we were years. thinking that yeah we just need to record again in about four years uh however uh our friends at the political r&d podcast did start a recall referendum and we've been recalled back into service so that's, that's right uh, that's good and we did i i mentioned political r&d we did a, a guest spot on them uh, about a month ago, and that was uh, that was some fun uh, for stepping outside of our comfort zone and actually appearing on camera. Yeah, we have faces for radio, Joey. We do have faces for radio. That's very true. So since February 29th, Kirk, uh, nothing really has been going on in the world of any note. What have you been up to? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> February 29th. So so going back there, like it was only a few days later, I was going on a cruise, which. If you'll remember, this was probably not the time to go on to a cruise. Mm-hmm. But we left Canada uh, about two days before uh, kind of uh, one of the big cases came out with, with cruises. And then we got onto the cruise ship when Canada then declared, do not go onto cruise ships. And it was kind of like look at, looking out at, over the balcony going, um... I, I guess we're here now. Uh, we were one of the last cruise ships to actually leave port in the United States. So that's fascinating because everybody on the ship, of course, by this point knew something was going on. What was the atmosphere like? Was it like being on a ship of the damned or, or were, were people just whistling past the graveyard or, or how was it? The, the funniest thing is it, it was a, it was a nerd cruise and nerds uh we tend to be a little bit um, obsessive compulsive shall we say so i have never uh seen so many people dedicated to so much hand scrubbing in my life and it was like you you would get these purell dumps on your hands uh like at every junction of the ship so like if you wanted to go get pizza on the one side of the ship like you crossed two purell stations to to get your hands clean 
get your pizza and you pass two to come back. Like it was absolutely insane. But there was not a single COVID uh, case on the ship as far as uh, anybody's been able to tell. Um, so that was good. I think I think I had more chance of getting it in the Fort Lauderdale airport than uh, than actually on the ship. Just considering how people were spaced and everything like that. But it was insane because because before we left, there was kind of this you know be careful if you travel. Then we got onto the ship. It was do not go on cruise ships. When you know the next week happened, it was kind of like okay, we might be putting in some travel restrictions. By the time we docked. It was like, get your ass back to Canada and self-quarantine for two weeks. <laughs> like, right. Okay. So it was absolutely insane. Okay. And, and so uh, it's been, it feels like 100 years since all this started. I mean, it felt like March had, had 700 days in it. Um, and, and suddenly time's now flying past. But, uh, and we're not going to spend the whole podcast talking about this, not by any stretch, but but how are you doing? Are, are you healthy? Are your people healthy? Yeah, every, everybody's good here. We're, uh, we've been pretty good at social distancing and, and um, you know, like I've, I wear my mask everywhere. So uh, that's all well and good. We uh, ended up buying a trampoline because what else is the kid going to do? You know, at the time there was no possibility of summer camps and, and all of that. And, but yeah, we're doing great. And how about yourself? Uh, everybody's healthy here, uh, still, still gainfully employed, which is uh, not to be taken for granted, especially uh, these days. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. My, my parents are both uh, considered uh, high risk, and they're uh, both uh, very healthy, uh, very common sense folks. They, uh, they've been staying out of trouble. And uh, it, it turns out that the uh, community petition that went around about six months ago that required me to wear a mask in public at all times is actually paying off now because, uh, you know, this is old hat for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, now the petition about requiring me to wear pants at all times because the, the reflection off my bare legs is, is blinding people, that hasn't made its way back to City Hall yet. So we're still uh, in a holding pattern there. We'll, uh, we'll give that link at the end of the podcast. Absolutely. Well, uh, we may as well govern by petition. That seems to be the direction we're going. And, uh, and that really is going to start us off on our, uh, what we're going to call our wonking from home edition. Um, we, <laughs> you can't see it, but Joey's giving me a look. Um, there have been a number of issues that have come up very recently, uh, mostly in provincial politics, uh, that are like, that get to the heart of like Joey and my democratic, um, wonkish nature um so we really want to to start talking about some of these things because i'm i i know that i've been rattling in my seat just vibrating as i read comments about things on on the twitter machine and such uh i can imagine that you've been the same joey Absolutely. I mean, democratic reform and the idea of changing the way in which we're governed has always been the thing that most excited me about politics. The parry and thrust, the, 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 uh, the excitement of a campaign, uh, election night, uh, leaders tours, uh, debates, speech writing, all of that is fun. But the idea that we can fundamentally, as a people, change the way in which we're governed and in, in in which we choose our leaders, that has always uh, been something that just excited me to no end. So uh, whenever a new proposal comes in, good or bad, 
it's like Christmas for me. So I've been uh, just chomping at the bit to have this discussion. So, of course, the UCP wants to bring in a referendum during the upcoming municipal elections about uh, equalization. Yes. Uh, specifically, it would be a non-binding resolution calling on the federal government to renegotiate the terms of equalization um, because Alberta, in the view of the United Conservative Party, is not getting uh, a fair deal from equalization. Now, whether you agree or disagree with that statement, I mean, I guess we'll find out when they count the votes uh, for, for that referendum. I expect I know how it's going to go, though. Um, but does it actually uh, require the federal government to come to the table? The argument that's being made is that it, it creates a moral impetus for the federal government to come to the table. But can a provincial government hold a referendum that creates a moral impetus on the federal government to open the constitution for negotiations? Well, and, and I mean, not even so much the, the constitution, but even, even just how the formulas are set up. I mean, first of all, the people involved with creating the most recent formula are some of the people calling on the government to change the formula. So we've, we've got that interesting scenario to begin with. But, but you make a good point. Like what, a non-binding referendum, what is its power? And, and is its power more so than an opinion poll? And, and, and I'm gonna do this just quickly from a mathematical standpoint, okay. right? So, so we know mathematically and i know people love to rail on this all the time that how can 500 people really uh be be representative of of the whole and and there there's math that goes behind this you know it's the type of thing where do we need to go to let's say 1 million voters to get alberta's opinion on equalization i mean if, if we did an opinion, let's say we did an opinion poll of, of 200,000, which would be massive, how is that any different than a non-binding uh, resolution on a referendum? And then, and, and then if it's non-binding, like, why? Well, I think there's power in the word referendum. Now, you, you will recall that Calgarians went to the polls fairly recently to talk about whether or not they wanted to hold the Olympics. Um, but that wasn't a referendum. That was a plebiscite. Right now, those are two words that, for all intents and purposes, uh, are used interchangeably, uh, although they don't necessarily mean exactly the same thing. But referendum is a is a loaded word in Canadian public discourse because when you say referendum, people think the Quebec referendum on separation. Right. right. Referendum is a big, heavy word, uh, and, and it's not used lightly. So when the United Conservatives say they want to hold a referendum, it's already, by the way, a foregone conclusion how that referendum is going to go. Right. You may as well hold a referendum on whether people want to pay more or less tax. Right. Everybody is going to say they want to pay less tax. 
right? Where it gets complicated is in figuring out how to make that work while still getting all the services that you want. But that's not on the referendum ballot, oddly enough. So um, it's, it's purposeful, their use of the word referendum for this, because they're hoping it's going to suggest a level of importance and gravitas that frankly, the rest of Canada is probably not going to be inclined to pay a lot of attention to. Um, uh, I mean, Premier Kenny, uh, for better or for worse, and, and I think for better, but that's just my opinion, has already said that um, separation is completely off the table. So once you have taken that card off the table, um, why should the feds listen to you? Right. I mean, they're they're not worried about losing seats because they don't have any, right? Uh, in in Alberta anyway. Um, so w where is the incentive? And the rest of the country, by the way, looks at Alberta and says, "Look, guys, if you want more money to spend on things, try taxing your citizens, because that's why uh, Alberta pays into equalization, or rather." because Alberta doesn't pay, let's be clear on that. It's why Albertans pay into equalization. Um, well, uh, yeah, because because a whole lot of the formula mm -hmm. is based on tax potential, not right. necessarily what is being taxed. So, so, of course, you've got this interesting situation where you've got Alberta has a higher median income than most provinces. So by nature, we're going to be taxed more uh, simply on a on a tax basis and then uh and then this 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 piece about you know uh whether or not we're taxed is is kind of the next uh next piece and and it's actually really interesting i wish i had the numbers uh in front of me right now but i i know that it's something like if if alberta taxed at quebec's level we would have billions of dollars in surplus every year and if Quebec taxed at Alberta's level, uh, they would be so far in debt it wouldn't even be funny, right? So, like, so, so this is why that comes into play. Yeah. So, in effect, ladies and gentlemen, the Alberta advantage guarantees that we will be a net contributor to equalization. We make more money than everybody else, and we pay less in provincial taxes than anybody else. So, when Alberta tries poor. The rest of the country says, raise your tax level, raise your tax level, and you will have more money than you know what to do with. Don't say to the federal government, you should take less money from us because you're already paying less than anybody else. There's a total percentage of income. So, so this referendum then is, is really a, it's a shot across the bow of Canada effectively. Um, well, just... it is, but I don't think that's what it's for. I think that the reason that this referendum is going to happen in the municipal elections is actually to stimulate conservative voter turnout for municipal elections sure. in, in the province, municipal and, and school board elections. It's a, it's, a, it's a page right out of the Republican playbook in the states, right? Well, I guess the, the neoconservative playbook all over the Western world, really, you, you put uh, something on the ballot that is going to encourage your people to make sure they stop what they're doing and they go up to the poll and they vote. 
And while they're there, they'll support all the candidates you want them to support. And you'll make sure of that too, because all these different campaigns are going to share their data. Uh, and then you win everything. So let, let's just divert a little bit away from this referendum per se. Okay. And let's talk about the provincial government or, in, or any government in general going to a referendum or a plebiscite uh, to get a, a uh, result from the people. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the, the, there's been these comments recently that, um, and, I, and I've seen it from a few supporters of, of the current government, that uh, if you do not agree with going to referendum, then you are undemocratic. Right. In, in fact, the, the United Conservatives have been putting out uh, cute little infographics saying, how is it the new Democratic Party if they don't support democracy? Right. Um, but, but the reality is that every party respects democracy as far as when they get the result that they want. Right. Let's not forget that the United Conservative Party and before them, the two, the two forebear parties, the Wild Rose and the Progressive Conservatives, spent four years talking about how Rachel Notley's government was an accidental government. Right. They talk about respect for the voters, and that's great. I think you should show respect for the voters. But when you call a government accidental, what you're saying is the voters were fooled, the voters were stupid, or the other guy cheated, right? None of those show respect for the voters. And, I mean, the corporate conservative spirit animal in Alberta, Brett Wilson, just got into hot water uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, uh, talking about how Nahed Nenshi only won the election against Bill Smith, um, because the Northeast ethnic voting bloc came out and supported him, uh, which, first of all, factually is incorrect. Uh, uh, and, and secondly, again, this is a, a well-known conservative voice who donates to a lot of conservative causes and candidates saying, essentially, that not all voters are equal. And right. sometimes when the voters come out and they, they vote for something I don't like, that's not really worthy of respect. So there's a two-way street there. If you respect the voters and you respect the will of the voters, then you have to respect when they choose a, a path other than the one that you're advocating for. Well, I think and, it, there's something to be said too about choosing your representatives, right? right? Like our, our entire democratic system um, is based on this idea that you elect somebody who is going to spend their, their time reading through bills, looking at the research behind things, uh, getting themselves acquainted with the intricacies of a particular piece of legislation, and then, and then represent you in the parliamentary body on votes for or against that particular piece of legislation. And not for nothing, that's why we pay them so well. That's... If you consider that paid well, right, and and that that could be that I think that's an argument we can have another day, because uh, <laughs> that's going to take us right off the rails. Uh, but but we we elect these people to make decisions for us. So a referendum is a relinquishing of that authority that we have granted them, um, in in lieu of of assuming that everybody is going to do their due diligence and and research in that and and. You know, I, I, 
I shared something on on Twitter the other day, um, which was um, it's it's actually from a book called Canada's Founding Debates, which is this incredible book. It is like it goes back to deb debates in the the eighteen sixties. Uh, there are two chapters, one on uh, going to the voters directly and one on the Constitution, where they talk about a lot of those pieces. And John A. MacDonald, who has a lot of faults um, and, and definitely is, is uh, a, a pariah in terms of, of history for a lot of reasons now, there are some really good arguments, though, he made. And, and this, this argument about whether a referendum is a good idea is uh, has been debated basically since the foundation of the country. But it's interesting because he really does focus on it from the populist perspective that basically referendums, when they come in, are basically for uh, populist leaders to invoke the will of whatever they want uh, in place uh, to to kind of like to, to bolster it, um, mm -hmm. and and because it goes to the majority, it it uh, you know it 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 might ignore some of the minority concerns that that we built our our constitution on. So so there's there's just a lot of there's a lot of nuance with going directly to people that has been argued for ostensibly the last uh, hundred and 175 years mm -hmm. yeah and i mean there were some really good points in that speech that sir john a made and and uh of course he was uh, uh stealing or not stealing he was borrowing heavily from the initial speech the, the first speech on on referenda uh that was uh made at canada's founding convention which was made by john lord of course but um <laughs> we miss you john uh we we do um no, the, uh, I have heard referendums described as legislative cowardice in practice, because what it does is it puts, especially if it's a binding referendum, it puts the, the decision-making power directly into the hands of the general population, the, gen the same general population that only 60%, generally speaking, can even be bothered to show up to vote in an election, right? And so what we end up doing is there's this very fine line between direct democracy, which is good, and mob rule, which is bad. And like you said, there's a component in here that our paid professional legislators need to keep an eye on at all times, which is protecting the rights of the minority. Right, we like to say majority rules, and that's absolutely true. But majority doesn't rule absolutely. Right. right, there there is a level of protection that needs to be considered when you're crafting legislation. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a situation where the majority is completely trampling on the rights of the minority, and that is not the kind of pluralistic society that Canada is built to try and, and be. And, and I mean, sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it fails, but it's always striving. And that's, that's something that in a direct democracy model where people are voting directly all the time can sometimes get lost because let's just face it. I mean, we're not normal, you and me. 
Uh, people like us who will sit down and read bills. I mean, this is not going to do any good for audio, but we're video chatting right now. This is what is sitting on my piano stand right now. It is a printout of Bill 29. Because this is what I do for fun. I go through and I read these bills. If I was asked to vote on it tomorrow, I'd have a pretty good idea what it said. But if my parents were asked to vote on it, two things. First of all, they'd have no idea what it said. And secondly, they would outvote me. Well, and, and so, so here, here's an interesting thing that, that I observed a few years ago on Twitter, um, back when Twitter was more moderate. Um, and, and I remember a bill coming out. It was a federal bill. And, and so first reading happened. And somebody in the public uh, looked at the bill. They read it. And they railed against this change. The, the, and, and I wish I could remember what it was, but, but if I do remember this very public railing against this change and, and it, it created these, these waves with social media. And what had happened is because of the way that bills are published, uh, it had the paragraph that had this, this piece in here, but it wasn't the part of the paragraph that was being changed. It was part of the paragraph that existed in existing legislation. So what was happening is somebody read this, they saw it as a change happening, whereas the change was happening later in the paragraph. And it doesn't mean that this shouldn't have been changed, but it does form a general misunderstanding as to how to rebuilds. And, and it could happen to anybody. And it, like, you know, it, like any job that you go to, there are nuances that you find out, um, you know, three months, six months, sometimes like 12 years in. But it, it really does go to show that sometimes direct democracy implies a level of understanding of the, the inner workings of bills and legislation and the interrelationship between those bills and other pieces of legislation or, or departments or, uh, or even the, the rules that govern parliament itself uh, that aren't going to be understood by people in the general sense. And it, it's like anything with practice, right? Like if we went to a referendum once a week um, and, and, and people just got, were used to that and, and maybe once machines have taken over and, and we have lots of time, maybe, maybe that's the type of direct democracy we'll need. But without that level of practice, like even, even me going to a referendum once every 20 years, like there's a level of you need to kind of get, get caught up to to what you need to do or or what the what the implications are like even even our discussion here about binding versus non-binding and and you know equalization being a federal jurisdiction like how much of that is understood by the general public right and it's not to dismiss the ability of the general public to to get on board and to to do the work oh, not at all people are busy Right? We're trying to live our lives, right? You got to get the kid to soccer practice. You got to, you know, get that garage built in the backyard. You got to go to work. You got to, you know, do the dishes and, and stuff gets lost. In the last federal campaign, I spoke to three neighbors who had uh, lawn signs up for the local conservative candidate. And I asked them why they were voting conservative because I was genuinely curious. I wasn't casting judgment one way or the other. Um, and one of the three 
told me that he couldn't support Trudeau because he knew that his father was pulling the strings behind the scenes. Pierre, <laughs> who's been dead for 20 years. Uh, apparently a weekend at Bernie's scenario? Right, but I mean, this is what I'm saying is, is he had his opinion and he's absolutely entitled to it and he's absolutely entitled to cast a vote on it. But in that case, at least one of my neighbors cast a ballot based on fear of a guy who's been dead for 20 years. And that is a situation that gets very dangerous when you're voting on minutia that, that results in bills. And we saw that writ large uh, very recently in Britain with Brexit. Right. right, where the day after the Brexit votes were, were tallied and announced, you had people who voted leave who didn't understand what it meant when they voted that way. Um, because people are busy and we pay politicians six-figure salaries to pay attention to these details and to make decisions in our best interest. And we do have a referendum every four years on whether we want to keep our representative or turf them for somebody new. And, and I mean, for something extraordinary, like leaving the country, I think you should have a referendum. But for something like, I want the federal government to understand I don't like the fact that Quebec gets cheap daycare and I don't get cheap daycare, there's a lot of layers to that discussion and we maybe shouldn't be holding a referendum without unpacking those layers first. Right. Now, let's let's talk about the, the next municipal election because that is when the referendum is supposed to occur. And there are some new rules that are being introduced. There uh, are. So, yeah. so we're gonna talk about uh, two things. We're gonna talk about funding and financial disclosure and they're, they're related. Mm -hmm. Now, now, I, I just would like to, to preface this. So, so in, in 2008, I ran in the federal jurisdiction. And federal um, went through a change in 2003, uh, and then a second change in 2006 that, that adjusted the campaign finance rules. And under the federal rules at that time, and it, it hasn't changed all that much, um, there is no ability for corporations or unions to donate to, uh, to campaigns, parties, whatever um the the maximum somebody can donate is eleven hundred dollars per year per party um now that can be distributed to as many um to as, as many constituency associations as they want as long as it totals uh eleven hundred um and then eleven hundred to a candidate in a in a federal election um, now, there are a few funny rules that cause some issue, like like uh, at the time you didn't have to disclose any donor who gave under $200, so theoretically, somebody could give $200 to every, like every, say every liberal campaign of the, th of, at the time, 308 campaigns in the country. Um, but it's very restricted. And um, that is not what Alberta is. Right, so uh, the the rules in Alberta for provincial uh, campaigns at least partially reflect the federal prohibition on corporate and union donations, which is good, right? That was a step taken by the New Democrats to take big money out of politics. At the time, they also increased the limit, uh, or rather decreased the limit, I should say, 
maximum you could donate was $4,000. Now, the conservatives are talking about getting rid of that, but where they're talking about making most changes is not with the provincial rules. It's with the municipal rules, as you mentioned. Now, the next municipal election uh, takes place in 479 days. So, 479 days from now, you are going to have a bunch of people on your ballot, and the first thing you need to know about these people is they are under no obligation, assuming this legislation passes, which it will, they're under no obligation to tell you or tell anybody before, that, before you vote for them who donated to their campaign. So in a municipal campaign, a corporation can donate. And you see that, you see a ton of numbered companies donating to these municipal candidates. Um, and it costs a lot of money to run, run a municipal campaign successfully. It costs more to get elected to a city council than it does to get elected as a member of the legislature uh, to sit in Edmonton. And or or parliament in Ottawa. Right. Uh, to, to run a successful campaign locally, at least in Calgary, you're talking about at least low six figures, if not mid six figures, you're talking $150,000, $200,000. Now, that is a lot of rubber chicken. That is a lot of $5 donations at the doors, or it's a few donations from some very well-off friends. What complicates matters in municipal campaigns versus um, uh, provincial and federal campaigns is because there are no political parties and because they don't need to keep the lights on, they don't need to pay party staff, they don't need to pay for database maintenance, they don't need to pay for year-round advertising for the party, um, they don't have any of that overhead, these municipal candidates, they can't issue tax receipts. So who can afford to donate to a municipal candidate. I can't. Can you? Nope. No. So what this does is it's, it's being done. It's being proposed at least according to the minister of municipal affairs, uh, Casey Madhu, it's, it's being um, proposed as a way of leveling the playing field because now Somebody who's not an incumbent, who doesn't have the incumbent's advantage for fundraising, can still come up and challenge, which is great in theory. But the incumbent still has a massive advantage in that they already know all these people who are, who are able to donate, right? If I were to run for municipal office, I don't know enough people to raise $200,000. So whether or not I would be good at that job, we'll never know because I'm never going to run. Now, spending the most money doesn't guarantee that you're going to win, but it sure helps. Right. And, and so, so one of the things is right now, that is what it takes to win a municipal election. Mm-hmm. But you could change that rule too instead, right? You could, you could change, like if, if we didn't, look at who is donating and how much they're donating we could look at it the other way and go if you're going to run for city councilor you can only spend up to forty thousand dollars right and that would that would level the playing field to some degree it would now the the argument against doing that is twofold first of all there's the constitutional argument around free speech Right, you're you're limiting somebody's ability to speak. You're limiting their ability to campaign 
and get their message out. Uh, that's the argument that, that conservatives make against uh, spending limits uh, for campaigns. I understand. I, I don't agree, but I understand. And, and we do have spending levels for campaigns at the federal level. We, we do. Absolutely, we do. And conservatives argue that those spending limits are put in place to ensure that liberals win. I don't follow the logic necessarily because the liberal messages need to get out too, but that's the argument. Uh, the other argument that's given for why creating spending limits would be a bad idea is because the way it's currently structured allows for a bit of a separation between the wheat and the chaff, which is to say that you don't end up, his last uh, mayoral campaign in Calgary, we had 12 candidates who, who said they were going to run for mayor, 10 who ended up on the ballot. Okay. Um, if you were to have a ballot with 40 names on it for city councilor, 40 people were running for city council, that would be a ridiculous amount of homework that you're expecting the citizens to be able to do. Everybody was able to spend $10,000. Just about everybody spent the limit. Um, but how do I tell who the, who the good ones are versus the bad ones? I mean, you can listen to the unelectables, we'll tell you. But aside from that, right, how do you know who to vote for? So that's the other argument against spending limits. And, and you know, while I like the idea of spending limits, that is a pretty compelling argument uh, against them. Is I mean, God, if there were 60 candidates for mayor, right, uh, you'd vote for the guy who changed his name to Jerome Aginla right before the race because he's got name recognition. I, I guess the question, though, is is financial control the right control? Um, or, or, or le like, is, is if, if putting funding limits or spending limits gets put in place and we have this issue of too many people running, one, we have to identify that, yes, that is actually an issue as opposed, like, is that a feature or a bug of democracy? Right. Um, the the other question is is there some other way you can limit that right and and so what what quite often will happen at party levels and and at at larger uh, election levels is you require say the signature of so many voters mm -hmm. uh, to actually run right so what what you could do is is something like if you want to run for city councilor uh, you need two hundred qualified electors in your in your ward, in your riding, um, to in order to be on the ballot, right? Like you can do other controls that aren't financial based. Right, absolutely you can. Now, now this begs the question, of course, with these changes being proposed by the provincial government in Alberta to remove uh, the, the need to um, uh, report who is donating to you uh, and to remove the limits on how much you can donate, who does that benefit? Who does that benefit? Because again, we don't have political parties in actuality um, running for municipal office in Alberta, and we don't have typically slates running for school boards or, or parties running for school boards, but they are training grounds for, uh, for, for higher office. And that is, again, something like I talked about before, that's right out of the neoconservative playbook. If you look at the recent history of provincial politics in Alberta, you see some interesting names on the list of people who ran for school boards. 
names like Kyle Fawcett, who was a minister of uh, sustainable resource development later on for the progressive conservatives. People like Manmeet Bueller, the late Manmeet Bueller, who was a minister uh, and, uh, and very senior member of the Jim Prentice government. Um, Danielle he, Smith. Danielle Smith, leader of the Wild Rose Party, right? Um, and, and you see these people, right, uh, even Sheila Taylor, who was a very high-profile candidate for the Wild Rose. Um, it, these are people who cut their teeth and get their press, and then they're able to perhaps leverage that into a successful move to, I won't say a higher level of office, uh, but a different level of office with perhaps more responsibility where the parties do come into play. And this is where you train your politicians and figure out who's going to move forward and who doesn't. There's no reasonable person in Alberta politics who thinks that Jeremy Farkas is going to stay the counselor of Ward 11 forever. He's definitely got his eyes on other jobs. And political parties would like very much to have somebody uh, with that kind of profile, somebody who's constantly being referred to on page five of your local fish wrap, that is the kind of name recognition that you just can't buy. I well, mean, spending limits or not. And, and the thing is, and, and you mentioned slates, and, and you, know, you know me, I like to go a little bit into the math. Um, let's say that you support your local candidate and your local candidate is looking for money and you're like, you know what? You are the type of person I would want to donate to. Um, so let's say you have somebody with a, an income of 60,000, which is, which is, uh, I believe, even higher than what the median income is, mm -hmm. uh, although I could be wrong. What's um, the median mean and uh, mode? No, yeah. never mind. That's for another day, Joey. Um, I have a course for sale. Uh, <laughs> um, Buy my book. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, but let's say somebody gave 1% of their income, their annual income, to a candidate. They gave 600 bucks to a candidate, okay? Okay. Now, Let's put that against somebody who runs, say, a massive, um, I won't say construction. Let's, um, let's say it's a, um, an AI company, okay. because there aren't really any big AI, AI companies in, in Alberta, and I'm not going to get myself sued. Uh, but let's say you run a massive AI company in Alberta, and you want like, legislation moved out of the way so that you can like, get you know, all this, this cool AI stuff going in Alberta without any type of control. Um, and let's say you, you pull in, let's say a million dollars a year. You're running a massive company. You're CEO. You make a million dollars. Now, let's say you decide to give your 1%. Well, now you can give $600 to a whole lot of candidates. In fact, you can give $10,000, like you could give $1,000 to 10 candidates to help ram through certain legislation, right? So, and, and that's only at a million dollar level. Now we've got people in this province who are making multiple times that. We've got now corporations who make significant multiples of millions of dollars, potentially billions of dollars, who now have the opportunity to fund an entire fleet of candidates at five, 10, $20,000 a pop. And they can't support federal or provincial candidates because right. they're barred by law. But municipal campaigns and school board campaigns are wide open. So, so as, as much as, as I understand the argument of, um, 
of it's not fair to to people against incumbents because you don't have the name recognition you don't have uh the connections that you would necessarily as an incumbent uh there is something to be said about the ability for a single entity or a small group of entities to significantly alter the election uh, for multiple candidates at once with um, with a a percentage of their income that would be equivalent to um, you giving six hundred bucks to a single candidate, right? Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a classic example. Just in the news today, there was talk of, well, maybe while Calgary is talking about the green line and they're talking about transit options, we should look at mass transit to and from the airport. Okay, that was in the news. Now, let's say that I run Joey O taxi cabs. And I make a lot of money taking people to and from the airport. Now, that income is going to go away if there is a uh, BRT or especially an LRT to the airport. So I call my buddy Kirk. You're not really my buddy, you're my competition, but you run Kirk Schmidt taxi cabs. And, and we have a conversation and then we call our buddy Troy, who runs Troy Sedan Rentals. And then we call his buddy and, and competition. And before you know it, we've got five or six companies that all have a vested interest, that all have something to lose by this. And we sit down and we say, look, a majority vote on Calgary City Council is eight. Let's fund eight winners. And we don't have to worry about this. Well, this and, that's, and that's the thing is, is let like, if you project your loss is going to be $100,000 a year, well, what's $400,000 to, to each company to, to fund eight candidates, right? $50,000 a candidate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, you, get, you get some candidates then uh, who, who end up getting elected. Now again, having the most money to spend doesn't guarantee a win, but it sure doesn't hurt, right? You look at the person who spent the most money in Calgary's municipal campaign uh, in, uh, in 2017, he did not win okay? he, uh, in the mayoral race. He came second. But the guy who came third was a longtime Calgary City Councilor. He had been on the news for a decade. He had been in the papers for a decade. He spent a quarter million dollars. And he finished third. He couldn't buy TV time. He couldn't buy column inches. Um, and, and they both lost to Nahed Nenshi, who did not spend the most, but of course, benefited from being the recognizable mayor of Calgary. Uh, he uh, had the name recognition and he's very popular. He won in just about every ward in the city. So, um, you know, having the money doesn't guarantee you a win, but it makes it a lot easier for you to run a campaign. We both run campaigns on shoestring budgets and you're begging, borrowing, stealing from every part of that budget to just make sure you get that one last lit drop out. Um, if you're able to run a radio ad uh, the day before the election, uh, that helps. That uh, that does not hurt your campaign. Yeah, so it's it's definitely a danger um, removing all spending limits um, for for the reasons we 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 said. There is also a danger to um, 
to a stagnant uh, council, a stagnant uh, set of, of elected officials if there are too many uh, controls put in place as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it, it's always a delicate balance. Um, and, and there are lots of ways to, uh, to go after it. Now that said, I, I would suggest that we just remove any ability to fundraise and spend money if we're just going to go to referendums uh, when we want opinion. Like why have elected officials then? Well, and especially if another one of the changes being proposed by the provincial government goes through, which essentially codifies PACs, political action committees, as uh, the new law of the land in Alberta. So, uh, you know, third parties would be able to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year with no requirement to report where they got the money from uh, in order to advocate for particular issues. Right uh, or against particular issues or particular candidates, right? Um, if you had ten uh, well-heeled unions in Alberta, which you don't, by the way, but if you did, in theory, they could use this UCP law to put a billboard on every corner that said "Fire Kenny," and no one would ever know who paid for the billboard. So, so let me take this a step further. Because there has been discussion in in Ottawa um, over over years, and and it creeps up every so often. There is there is uh, a piece in charity legislation, um, which is that if a charity is going to give money to another entity, it must be and and if it's like not done as like paying for service, right, like. Like you're not paying for an IT company to come in and and, uh, and do your IT. Like actually just transfer money out. You have to transfer to what is considered a qualified donee, which is effectively another registered charity. There's talk in Ottawa about removing that restriction. So, so taking this a step further, there might be opportunity with the two pieces together uh, for a pack to effectively be in, uh, be registered as a um, as a like nonprofit society in Alberta, mm -hmm. um, and money could be brought in from a qualified charity, so you get a tax receipt. They transfer that money to these political action committees, and not only not only it, is the money, you know, like it as you said, like it, they don't have to disclose who. Uh, where they got the money or, or whatever, but but they might be able to give uh, tax receipt. They might be able to give tax breaks to the people who fund these these action committees uh, through this other mechanism in Ottawa. Like this is kind of what I was talking about earlier, but understanding how different legislation plays with other legislation. Like this is these are important points to to this as well. Right, and this is not tinfoil hat stuff. We already see this happening all the time down in the U.S. Right, and so this idea of dark money, this untraceable money that is appearing out of nowhere and going to support or oppose a, a, a viewpoint, or in this case, uh, a referendum question, right? Uh, suddenly you, you, you just have no idea. And, and if we think back to the plebiscite on the Olympics in Calgary, if you had seen billboards everywhere saying vote no, to the um, uh, vote no to the question on the Olympics. Um, and, and then after the fact, you heard through the grapevine and it eventually came out 
that the people who were saying vote no on the Olympics, uh, who were spending money on that campaign, were people who stood to gain because they would be able to build uh, houses on sites that were set aside for athletic uh, uh, fields and that sort of thing, right? Uh, developers, let's say, right? That would be a really big deal. And it seems like that would be information you would want to have before you went in and voted, which ties this right back into that initial question of, of uh, financial disclosure, right? Do we as citizens, as voters, deserve to know who is paying for this ad, who is paying for this politician to draw, you know, uh, get his literature in my mailbox, uh, who is paying for what it is that we're seeing? Because and and this, this is in combination with the spending limits though, mm -hmm. right? Like, like I, I think there's something to be said if spending limits were really small and kept to individuals, as much as you do want to know who's, who's buying a particular uh, side, if, you know, like if, if it's like the federal level, I, I think it's like 1600 now. And, and I know a lot of people are not giving $1,600, but you need a lot, you need a good hundred people to give $1,600 to run a $160,000 campaign, right? Like it's not, it's not like you could just do it with, with a small group of, of people. So, so there, there's almost a, a, a larger impetus to have this financial disclosure if you're not going to have the spending limit. Well, and this goes back to the question that we talked about about halfway through the podcast today, which was um, trusting the voters. Right? Right. If you trust the voters, if you believe your cause is just and righteous and your candidate is genuinely the best one or your position on the referendum or the, the ballot question is the superior position, then why would you be opposed to the idea that the voters can know ahead of time who is funding you? Why would that idea frighten you unless you feel that voters would go, oh, I don't know that I really want to support based on knowing now what I know, right? What are you scared of? Do you trust the voters or don't you trust the voters? Well, I think, you know, there's probably plenty of things we could continue talking about, but uh, we already are told that we go too long. So uh, I I would would uh, not like to anger the the few people who do regularly listen to our not so regular podcasts. Yes, hi mom. So <laughs> before we go, hi Mrs. Overhofter. <laughs> before we go, uh, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our super engaged political listeners, because this is going to be a dark time with the exception of the conservative party leadership race, which we've already uh, 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 whipped into the ground on this podcast. Um, it, there's nothing to vote for this year. There's, there, there are no ballots coming up. How do people stay engaged and, and what should they be spending their time on between now and the next time they go to a ballot box? I think I Honestly, I think the the thing is to not be discouraged, and believe me, it's not easy to not be discouraged at times. Um, and and really try to uh, impart upon people, especially if if they're willing to listen, the importance of of any type of legislation that affects democracy itself. Um, you know, like as, as much as a lot of issues have come up in the last few months and, you know, there's been a lot of changes with the UCP for good or for bad, 
um, the the moment that things start touching on how democratic systems work, it requires a level of attention that I think is um, is almost it, it behooves us to to put more attention to than normal because uh, small changes done in succession, like going to more referendums, allowing more funding with no financial disclosure from more entities, some of which are not individuals, slowly, I think, and I'm going to say from my perspective, erode our democratic principles and are going to put us in a position where we're not like, we're going to, we're going to suddenly look back and go, how did we get here? And, and, it's not ever going to have been a single play. It's always going to be a small trickling of, of these, these erosions of democratic controls that get us to a point where, where you have, say, like a country like the United States where it's supposed to have checks and balances and it seems like those have uh, failed in, in a, lot of, a lot of places. Right. Well, you don't turn a cruise ship on a dime. Right. right. It it turns a degree at a time until it's completely changed course and you didn't even notice. Right. And and the best analogy for democratic reform that I ever heard was was a friend of mine who uh, uh, who's no longer with us. But he he mentioned that if you're in the hospital and you're there with a friend and your friends hooked up to some machines and the nurse comes in and looks at the clipboard and leaves, you're not that worried. Because, you know, they just looked at it and they left. But if a doctor comes in, looks at the clipboard, and then injects something into the IV, you're going to go, well, what was that? Why did you feel a need to, to do that? What, what's going on? Is there something you'd like to tell me? Um, that's when you start to get a little bit concerned, or at least pay a bit more attention. To what's happening and and i certainly encourage people pay attention i mean these are these are uh dire times for uh, a lot of people uh, for a lot of different reasons uh financially health wise most importantly of all um but uh th there's a lot happening and I, I know it can be overwhelming at times i mean we see all kinds of news happening from the states right now not just around the presidential election, but of course also um, uh, protests and riots and police brutality and and uh, cancel culture is running rampant on the internet. Um, every time you see a celebrity's name trending on Twitter, you have a heart palpitation because you're not sure whether they died or somebody found a stand-up routine they did 10 years ago and you're not necessarily sure which one would be worse. Um, but at the end of the day, this is stuff that really does matter. And it, it does affect uh, our, our, not necessarily our day-to-day -day lives, not right at first, but uh, it, it's, it's a slippery slope before you end up with a system like they have in the States where they have gerrymandered districts that defy all geometrical logic and where you have systems where uh, now you need so many pieces of ID to vote that unless you went to Harvard, you don't have six pieces of photo ID. So now you've got an entire disenfranchised uh, neighborhood that, that can't show up and vote for their own representative. Um, those are all things that were passed into law uh, by elected representatives, uh, sometimes helped out by referendums. And, and you, need to, you need to watch. 
Well, and and uh, you know, on, on that That's on that note, constantly pay. On that note, I'd, I I I do want to ask you a question, Joey. Who is the term gerrymandering named after? Oh my goodness! You know, this is something I read once and I was fascinated by, but I don't recall. I'm sure you're going to tell us though. So so it is so the the. A governor of Massachusetts uh, by by the last name of Gary, um, so so not the same G, but but effectively um, created a district that looked a lot like a salamander, mm-hmm. and so the the name gerrymander is actually a portmanteau of his name and salamander. That's awesome! I love it. There you go. Everybody learned something today. It, it, it came at the end, but they learned something. Exactly. There we go. Well, Kirk, uh, until next time, whenever that is, I hope, you and and have out. <laughs> I hope you and your family stay safe and well. I hope everybody's families stay safe and well. Uh, and we are going to keep paying attention, and we would ask that you do the same. Uh, until next time. I am the Enlightened Savage, Joey Oberhoffman. I am Kurt. I am Kurt. And we are... The Unelectables. Yeah.